Why do we remember our first kiss, but not our 10th? What determines what we remember and what we forget? Memory is quite economical. In a nutshell, our brains have evolved to remember what is meaningful. They forget what isn't. The truth is, much of our lives are habitual, routine, and inconsequential. We shower, brush our teeth, drink coffee, commute to work, do our jobs, eat lunch, commute home, eat dinner, watch TV, spend too much time on social media, and go to bed day after day. We can't remember anything about the load of laundry we did last week, and that's okay. Most of the time, forgetting isn't actually a problem to solve. We would probably all agree that forgetting our 10th kiss, last week's laundry, what we ate for lunch on Wednesday, and whatever is on the head of a penny isn't such a big deal. These moments and details aren't particularly significant. However, our brains also forget plenty of things we do care about. I would very much like to remember to return my daughter's overdue library book, why I just walked into the kitchen, and where I put my glasses. These things matter to me. In these instances, we often forget not because it's efficient for our brains to do so, but because we haven't supplied our brains with the kinds of input needed to support memory creation and retrieval. These garden variety memory failures are normal outcomes of our brain's design, but we seldom think of them this way because most of us aren't familiar with our memory's owner's manual. We would remember more and forget less if we understood how the process works. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm joined by Lisa Genova, the author of the best-selling novel Still Alice, and now her first non-fiction book, Remember, which uses the author's expertise in the field of neuroscience to tell us why our memory works the way it does, and why forgetting might not be as bad as you think. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Remember is your first foray into non-fiction writing after a very successful string of fiction books. What inspired you to write about memory, not in fiction form? Yeah, so I've been talking about Alzheimer's and memory for over a decade. I found that at every speech, the conversation always shifted from Alzheimer's to memory in general. And folks, especially over the age of 40, are all feeling concerned and confused and ashamed, um, really stressed out about their memory and their sort of everyday moments of forgetting and worried that these moments might be a symptom of something more sinister brewing in their brains. And so I realized that there's a lot of misconception out there. And, you know, our world is a super stressful place to live in right now. And I thought, you know, this is a stress that I can take off of people's plates, actually. Um, hmm. We don't have to be burdened with and punish ourselves every time we can't remember the name of the Netflix show that your friend recommended or why you walked into your kitchen. Um, this is These lapses in memory 
are totally normal and a result of just how our brains have evolved. So I thought if I could explain this to folks, and, and I was, I was explaining it to people sort of one at a time at these various talks all over the place. And I thought, you know, this isn't a very efficient way about to go about helping folks understand this. Let me, let me stop. Let, let me pause writing the stories for a moment and just let me help contribute something here to help people really understand what's going on so they can relax about it and and not stress about something that they don't have to stress about. From your perspective, why do you think that people are so afraid of forgetting and what that might mean? Yeah, well, I think that for many of us, we have witnessed Alzheimer's and so we, in a, especially in a loved one, and so we've personally felt what it is like to see someone you love stripped of all of their personal history and all of their memories. And it, it's devastating when memory loss is that profound and pervasive. But for most of us, we don't live with Alzheimer's and our, our memory losses are somewhat benign and certainly a normal part of our, again, a normal part of our brain's design. It is a part of being human. I think that you know, as a as a world, we've placed so much importance on intellect, cognition, and memory. We've we've raised it to such you know high levels of importance, and it's really not fair because you know we think while memory is, it's kind of this double edged sword. There's this chapter in the book I call the memory paradox. I think that in terms of trying to understand how we should hold our memory and what kind of relationship we have with it, I think it's incredibly powerful and super important and amazing. And it's also a bit of a dunce and totally not reliable. And you can kind of like not take it too seriously. So it's kind of both things, right? So it's memory allows you to do pretty much everything you do in life. And it doesn't remember most of your own life. So if you think about your day to day, like your senses are open for business you know, how many seconds a day, right? Like thousands and thousands of seconds a day. And yet you'll only remember, maybe if you're lucky, you might remember something from today, a year from now, like think of, okay, so what are we at? Today's February 11th. What, what happened to you last February 11th? No clue. No idea. Right. So we place so much importance on memory and yet our memory really isn't that perfect at all. It's, it's wildly imperfect. And so I, I also wanted to write this book to sort of help people understand that memory is naturally fallible and it's human to be imperfect with memory and that maybe if we're a little more forgiving of our own day-to-day lapses in memory, if we understand and don't shame and judge ourselves when we leave the burner to the stove on accidentally, then maybe when a loved one develops Alzheimer's, it's not as dramatic a fall from grace that the kinds of forgetting that they experience, especially in the beginning, like say, leaving the burner to the stove on, doesn't mean that, you know, okay, you could never use the stove again. You know, while we want to keep our loved ones safe, of course, there is this like, you know, if you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, then every moment of forgetting is an example of disease pathology and everybody gets all upset and freaked out. But if we then back it up and remember that, well, wait, our healthy brains forget all the time, we can sort of 
see that the spectrum is a little more fluid. Given your extensive experience writing fiction, how difficult was it switching to a more informational and sort of less serious nonfiction format for Remember? Yeah. So interestingly, I thought it would be so much easier because I was sort of going back home with this book, right? So I began my life as a neuroscientist. And so writing nonfiction and writing scientifically is sort of, you know, where I began and where I should feel most comfortable. And on the one hand, I, it was really fun to go back to sort of my roots, um, but I really missed telling stories. It feels a little more constrictive than fiction because with fiction, you can create anything. You know, while you're trying to tell the truth under the imagined st- circumstances, you still get to make stuff up. And so there's so much room to run and create, whereas in nonfiction, you, you have to you have to get it right. Like you have to be in that box. The fun part for me and the challenging part in this was to try and pick out what out of this field of, of memory, and it's both neuroscience and psychology, um, what can I pull from those fields that are relevant to everyday people every day and make the book feel like a conversation so that you know, so that it would be engaging for folks and it would be memorable so that they could, you know, then finish reading the book and, and then live it. Right. So I didn't want it to feel academic and I didn't want it to feel like a lecture or a scientific text, but I'm given everyone real stuff. So that was the real challenge for me of you know, how to hit that right conversational note. And what other ways did you try and, I guess, distill the very complex ideas of how the brain works to readers who probably wouldn't have a scientific background? Yeah. Well, so I do, I'm used to that kind of translation regularly with my fiction as well, right? So I, in all of the novels that I write, and right now I'm researching um, a novel about a woman with bipolar disorder. So I read everything I can about the subject and I read the scientific research papers. I read the medical textbooks, which are really dense. And, and um, I read the first person accounts, a memoir. And then I talk to people, I talk to, to physicians and psychiatrists and families and sort of everyone who touches someone whose life, life is affected by whatever it is I'm writing about. I gather a lot of information, but I'm not trying to just data dump on the reader. I want to give the reader a story. And I also feel an enormous responsibility to give the reader the truth, right? So the truth of what these diseases and conditions are like to live with. There is a, there's a lot of real information in the novels, but I'm not, again, it's not meant to sound like a clinician's textbook. So I'm used to sort of taking a lot of scientific medical information and translating it into a way that the reader can enjoy as entertaining uh, and not feel, feel like they're being taught. So I kind of am used to that from fiction. Nonfiction, it's certainly different. Um, there was more room for me to sound like a teacher, I guess. I mean, I need to be invisible when I write my novels. But so the perspective, like the point of view in Remember is me. I'm talking to you. I can sound a little more scientific because the reader knows I'm a neuroscientist. But at the same time, I really did want it to feel like a friendly conversation. So 
Um, I had that in mind. And then I also, as with all of my books from the very beginning, I have three of my aunts and my best friend reading each chapter as I write it. And this time I also added my parents. So I added my mom and dad who are in their 70s. I asked the feedback I asked for is if any of this feels like it's over your head or it feels like it's too scientific or I'm using too many, too much jargon, let me know. Um, and the one chapter in particular that I remember my father said, it's just, there's too many, like too many multisyllabic words. It was the, the chapter on stress. I included way too much about the physiology of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. <laughs> so I got rid of I got rid of a lot of the jargon and just again stayed focused on what is it that I want you to take away from this? What do I want you to know about stress and how it affects your memory and what you can do about it? So I stayed focused on what I really wanted readers to to be able to live and breathe with. Remember is quite linked to your debut book, Still Alice, in the idea that they're both very heavily about memory and Alzheimer's as well. Going back to Still Alice, why did you want to tackle memory and Alzheimer's in fiction? This all started with my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. So I, at the time, was a neuroscientist and I had done um, most of my research had been on drug addiction on the molecular neurobiology of drug addiction. But my, when my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I'm from a large Italian family. And so the caregiving did not fall on my shoulders. My Nana had nine children and five of them were daughters and the daughters really did the heavy lifting. But I'm the neuroscientist in this family. So I set aside time to research Alzheimer's and learn everything I could about the disease. And everything I read, I read a lot that was super helpful. But at the same time, I recognized that everything I read was written by a scientist, a clinician, a caregiver, or a social worker. And so they were all views from the outside looking in. And I recognized that what was lacking was the perspective of the person who has it. Interestingly, at the same time, I really was, I, w I struggled with staying connected to my grandmother when she had this, you know, when she didn't know who I was anymore, I was really unnerved by that, you know, upset and heartbroken, but also just didn't know how to be with her and that I avoided her. So I had sympathy for her and I couldn't have articulated all of this then. I was 28. I, I felt bad for her and I felt so bad for us, her family, right? It was just, we, she was a great woman. We loved her so much. And so I felt bad for her and bad for us, but I didn't know how to feel with her. And that's, that's empathy, right? So if I feel bad for her, that's sympathy. So she's different from me and she's way over there and I'm way over here, safely different. But empathy is being able to collapse that distance and just feel with her. What was missing in the literature was feeling with her. I didn't have that perspective of the person with it to understand how to be with that emotionally. And I made this intuitive leap, which was, well, Fiction is a place where you get to walk in someone else's shoes. That's where you get to explore empathy. And so I thought, well, someday I'll write a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. And then I'll get an answer to this question of what does it feel like to have this? 
I'll get, I'll be able to experience empathy with Alzheimer's. And I thought I would do this like, you know, someday when I was retired because I didn't know how to write a novel. I was a scientist. My oldest child was born in 2000. I quit my job intending to be out for like six months to a year. I just wanted to get her started on the planet in a sane way because I was working like 60 hours a week at least. But I didn't go back to work because my marriage started to unravel. I don't know. I was sort of paralyzed in fear and worry and shame and didn't do anything. When she was three, we were separated and then divorced. And so now I was an unemployed, divorced, single mom. My life was suddenly not on the neatly plotted graph I had always lived on of like checking all the boxes. I should have just gone back to work. But instead, this sort of moment of being derailed really invited at first it was just terrifying but then it invited this really cool opportunity to consciously ask myself well what do I want to do next and what do I really want to do what do I want my life to look like and I was the question was if I could do anything I wanted and I didn't have to worry about what anyone thought of me and if I didn't have to worry about money what would it be and it was the answer that kept coming out of me that I couldn't get away from was go write that book and I, it, I didn't want to say yes to that because it seemed so unreasonable and kind of dumb for me to think that I could do that. And I was already in this sort of unsafe place in life. At least it felt that way at the time. Like, you know, I'm suddenly not married anymore. and I'm suddenly, unemployed, you know, I'm unemployed. And not, it just go back to work. That's the safest, surest thing. You know how to do that. You're good at being a neuroscientist. But instead, I was like, no, I'm going to try to write a novel. So um, that's how that all happened. I took this really big risk and um, had no idea what I was doing. And it worked out well. (laughs) Even before Still Alice, what made you want to become a neuroscientist? What sparked your interest in the brain? I was always interested. Well, I loved, I always loved math, math and science. My brain goes there very easily. Um, And I loved biology. I loved the, how do we work? I had, you know, in physiology, you start, the heart is a pump and the kidney is a filter, and that's all cool. But the brain is in charge of your mood and your desires and your ability to talk and walk and think and and remember. And it just it was so just profoundly mind blowing and fascinating. And so I took a course in what would be called neuroscience now. It was called physiological biology. And at the same time, I read a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. And the two things, I was just like, oh, my God, this is it. I want to be a neuroscientist. This is so cool. So, yeah, like back I was 18 when I knew I wanted to do that. Well, with all the knowledge of the brain and its mysteries that you have now, is there a particular fact that you know that really, if you'll pardon the pun, blows your mind the most? Is there any particular fact that blows? I mean, I'm regularly blown away. Um, So, I mean, so I am right now listening to David Eagleman's audio book, Live Wired. Um, He's a neuroscientist, and he also wrote a book called Incognito. And he's given this phenomenal TED Talk about how... So our senses are basically just portals receiving information. The brain is the brain is in in the darkness, right? The brain is just in your skull. It doesn't actually see any of the world. But the information it receives is converted into electrochemical signals. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't really care how the information got in. It is just it's just decoding the pattern. So if you are deaf, 
And so the information can't from your ears isn't creating signals in your brain for you to hear things. People can learn to hear through mechanical taps on their back. So David Eagleman invented a vest that can detect sound waves and convert them into vibratory patterns on the surface of the skin of your back. And through training, just like you'd learn, you know, anything like this, the, this tap means what I'm saying. Deaf people can learn to hear through the vibrational taps on their back. So I just think that that's fascinating. It's there's all sorts of there are there are um, wristbands that people can use to see detectors that people can wear on their tongue. So they're just it's fascinating to me that the brain is so um, the ter- the term in neuroscience it's called neuroplasticity. The brain can be different parts of the brain can be used to decode different signals depending on what it receives. So it's pretty remarkable what the brain's able to do. It's also able to, you were also now able through um, people who wear prosthetic limbs by hooking up the nervous system to uh, electrical panels in the limbs, you can now think and move your, move your prosthetic limb, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Stuff is getting like very futuristic sounding, but neuroscientifically, it all makes sense that we should be able to do these remarkable Mm. things. On the note of brains doing incredible things throughout the book, remember, you mention a few people who have seemingly superhuman abilities to remember, such as Akira Haraguchi, who can remember pi up to 111,700 digits. From your perspective, are some people just born with abilities like this, or are they trained to do so, or is it a little bit of both? Uh, So, Akira Haraguchi, he does not have he his brain is not uniquely remarkable in any way so he's not a savant and he's not a mathematical genius he trained himself to remember that many numbers and so pi is this non-repeating number that is infinite and it has no pattern and what he and folks like him who are memory athletes or memory champions do is he converts the, those meaningless numbers into letters that create words, that create stories. So our brains have a hard time remembering meaningless information, but are really, really good at remembering anything that we find meaningful, emotional, or surprising. And so he has created a code whereby the numbers are translated into words that create a story. So he's just been able to create a really long story that he's memorized, which is remarkable, but he trains and he works at it every day and he cares about this. Some folks are born with better memories than others. There are some folks on this planet who have something called highly superior autobiographical memory. And these folks can remember in vivid detail every day of their lives, usually from about the age of 10 on. For the rest of us, if I asked you, okay, what'd you do on November 6th, 1995? I was not alive, so I can't tell you. What'd you do? I know you're so young. Okay, (laughs) what did you do? (laughs) Where were you and what were you doing and what was the weather and who were you with on December 2nd, 2010? 
Oh, I was probably at school. That's about as much as I can tell you. Yeah, that's usually what I can do. I can usually yeah. say like sort of like where I was living in the world, kind of like figure out my age. Like I was approximately doing something like this. Mary Lou Henner, who is a actress in the United States, she was in the TV show Taxi. Um, she has highly superior autobiographical memory. And if I play this game with her, she'll say something like, oh, that was a Monday. It was raining. I was wearing these shoes. I was recording this video and I, I was just about to go away for the weekend with Johnny Travolta. Like that's what she, t- I mean, she's that specific. So that's not something you could train to do. That is, your brain is different. Um, Scientists have identified through brain scans nine regions of the brain that are enlarged in people who have highly superior autobiographical memory. But we don't know if they're enlarged because they have this or were the brain regions that are enlarged, is that what causes them to have the superior memory? So it's a little chicken and egg thing right now. And for anybody who's worried about becoming forgetful or losing their cognitive abilities, what's one piece of advice you'd give to them apart from reading your book? I want folks to know that things like forgetting people's names, so pronouns in particular, are like neurological cul-de-sacs. They're super hard to get to. And it's very normal for us to have them on the tip of our tongue and like, ah, you know, you know them, but you can't find them. So forgetting names, not knowing why you walked into a room, forgetting where you put your phone, your keys, your glasses. Folks, that's probably not a memory problem at all. You probably didn't pay attention to where you put them in the first place. And you cannot form a memory unless you first give it attention. So we're pretty distracted as, as, as a species right now. And, and distraction does not lend to good memory. Um, so a lot of these things are normal. But if you are worried about Alzheimer's and dementia, and you do want to, and we, not that you should worry, but we should all be um, mindful of our brain health. The things you can do to support that are sleep, So the science on sleep data are really compelling. We need seven to nine hours of sleep a night to support our memories for what we learned today, what we plan to remember tomorrow, and for preventing Alzheimer's. And I know people freak out about that. I know that I've been sleep deprived for decades in my life. I've had three kids and I was, you know, in college, I was always up late and not getting enough sleep. Whatever sleep you've missed is already water under the bridge. Like if you start, start from now, try to be mindful of your sleep. You really are supporting your brain health by getting that in. Managing stress is huge. So we live in a really stressful time and we're not going to be able to have control over, you know, the next pandemic or, you know, politics or climate change or whatever is going on out there. But we can do something about how we react to it. Because if we're constantly under chronic stress, chronic stress actually shrinks your brain. So you will lose neurons in your hippocampus under chronic stress. And your hippocampus is a part of your brain that is essential for the formation of new memories. And then things like, I mean, it's not very sexy. It's the same stuff that's good for your heart is going to be good for your brain and your memory. So it's aerobic exercise, Mediterranean diet. Those things have been shown to... um, to be like really, really helpful. Hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. 